The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Our next guest, Doug Ditches and collected used cardboard when he was a teenager. Today, he's a billionaire and business icon. I'm talking about Ken Langone, co-founder of Home Depot and former director of the New York Stock Exchange uh, and founder and chairman of Invamed Associates. Uh, Ken, thank you so much for being with us. You have a new book out. It has an unambiguous title, I Love Capitalism! Exclamation point, an American Story. Uh, what made you write this book now? Well, it's very interesting. I've been approached by some people in the publishing industry about three or four years ago that thought I had a book to write, and I thanked them, and I said, it's really not my thing. And then the presidential election showed up in 2016, and I happened to be watching Bernie Sanders, and I was shocked at the number of young people that were passionately and enthusiastically following his message, and it scared the hell out of me, because if people that young give up on what brought us to the party or what made America great, we really have trouble. Uh, capitalism, to me, is this magnificent, very unique engine that only America has in where we have it, and the results are all around us. You can look and see better lives. A, a poor kid like me, a kid that mediocre student, uh, uh, Mother and father didn't go past the eighth grade, lived from paycheck to paycheck. Uh, not easy, but never knew I didn't have anything because I always had a warm house and uh, plenty of good food. And, but my parents had to work like hell. And here I am today. And, and by the way, whatever success I have, and I'll leave it for others to judge that, uh, it only happened because I had so many people, so many, many people help me along the way. I'm not self-made. I'm anything but self-made. But this is a magnificent country, and I just thought it was up to me to take a stand and say, hey, wait a minute, let's not kill the baby with the bathwater. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, I should say. So that's what made me write the book. Ken Langone, uh, just so people understand uh you uh, persuaded Ross Perot to hire you to lead uh, his initial public offering for electronic yep. data systems, co-founder of uh, Home Depot. I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit about that June day in 1957 when you graduated from Bucknell. And there's a wonderful picture in the book of you and your parents, John and Angie Langone, right. and how you got into Bucknell and how you managed to graduate? Well, that's interesting. I got into Bucknell 
almost by accident. I had gone up, I was a senior in high school, it was 1953, uh, it was the spring of the year, the Korean War was still on, Eisenhower had just been elected, I was going to join the Marine Corps after high school. My mother wouldn't sign, I wouldn't be 18 until September, and my mother wouldn't, my brother was already in the military, I only had one brother, he was in the military, and my mother was adamant she was not going to sign me, and if I wanted to wait till 18 and I wanted to go, she couldn't do anything about it. But anyway, I went to Bucknell for a weekend to visit some friends. And it turns out it was what then called House Party Weekend, and boy, I had a hell of a time. And I thought, my God, if this is what they do in college, I might want to think about college. <laughs> and, 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 and Eisenhower didn't cooperate because he ended the Korean War, so there was no war to go up for. And uh, while the weekend I was up at Bucknell, uh, the kids I was seeing, Bucknell used to have Saturday classes, and the kids I was there to see told me to go see the governor's building over there. There's a guy there. Registrar. He wasn't called the dean. It was called the registrar. His name was George Faint. And I went over and I saw him. And he said, "What are you doing here?" And I said, "Well, my friend said I should come and talk to you." What about? I said, "I don't know." Well, tell me about yourself. I saw him. I'm in high school. And what are you going to do? I don't know. I'm thinking about going to the Marine Corps. Uh, well, have you applied to college? And I said, "No." Well, you want to go to college? I said, "Well, I'm not sure." But we had. A, we ended up having a talk for about an hour. And the following week, he sent me a letter, and he said. You know, if you want to come to Bucknell, we'd love to have you, but you're going to have to work much harder in college than you did in high school. Well, that wasn't hard because I didn't do a damn, practically nothing in high school. But thank God I had a good mind. I just didn't put it to much use. And so I ended up going to Bucknell, and I almost flunked out. Stories in the book. And But for a professor who saw something in me I didn't see in myself, he he got all my other professors together, and they worked to pull me out of this nosedive, and I ended up graduating from Bucknell in three and a half years. I actually graduated in February of 57, yeah. but the ceremony was in June, and I wanted my parents to see the graduation, and that's when I went back for the graduation, and that's where that picture came from. So, you know, it was my parents, my parents just couldn't believe they had a son that went to college, graduated from college. <laughs> It was, it was, it was, it was, it was just special. That's why I, I, I'm sorry I'm breaking up. No, Ken, um, you have an amazing story and uh, it's a fabulous book. Everybody should read it. I'm wondering, you. you know, I want to talk about what you were saying when you said, you know, you saw Bernie Sanders and people who are kind of challenging the American capitalistic dream. And I'm wondering whether you think anything has changed at a time when there's one and a half trillion dollars of student debt uh, hanging out there and uh, and sort of the gap between wealthy and poor people has widened. Let me show you how much I'm committed to the problem. I'm chairman of NYU Langone Health. The dean and CEO, Bob Grossman, and I have one remaining major passion. We want to tell every kid that comes to our medical school they will no longer pay tuition. That'll only happen if we can get wealthy people to contribute to our endowment that we can afford to do that. Now, about the trillion trillion and a half dollars of debt. Number one, my father insisted, my father was a plumber. But while I was in high school, my father insisted I help him so that if, when I got out of college, high school, when I got out of high school, I didn't go to college, I'd have a trade, a plumber. 
a lot of kids that are going to college today and, and bur- burdening themselves with debt would be better served learning a trade, learning a skill. We have an incredible shortage in this city of plumbers, carpenters, electricians, and they're great. They're $100,000, $125,000 a year jobs. These are not low-paying jobs. First of all, let's start with the belief that college isn't for everybody. And you don't have to go to college to be successful. Many of the people I know never saw the inside of a college, and they're enormously successful. So I think we need to take a step back and ask ourselves the question, is this the magic pill? No, I don't think it is. But if it is, let's figure a way out to make it affordable for kids. And I don't know the answer to that, except I do know that the more money that you raise philanthropically, like Bucknell, like New York University, or I was at a finance committee at the university last week, the more endowment we can generate, the more income we have that we can offer more students subsidization of their costs. There's no easy answer. Ken Langone, would you say that one of the magic pills for your life has been your wife, Elaine? Oh, boy. And how? Big time. Big time. <laughs> talk about being now self-made. There she is. I'm telling you right now. Big time. Every crazy idea I had, she was always there. You know, when they didn't work, she was there. When they did work, she was there. You know, she, she's my anchor to Winwood. Uh, absolutely. Hey, look. And by the way, every marriage has bumps in the road, but that's part of living. Every life has bumps in the road. And 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 we're we're how we how do we live? We love to sit down on a Sunday in a rainy afternoon like it was this past weekend and watch a movie. Simple stuff. Anybody can do it. Yeah. Um, Ken, just I want to I want to end on on a slightly different note. I know that you invest sure. in Palantir, a company that Peter yep. Thiel uh, founded, and there's been some discussion yep. that it could potentially be hurt by the uh, sort of resumption of Iran's sanctions. What's your take on this, and do you think it'll affect the valuations there? I don't, frankly, understand. It's a complicated situation with Iran. I know this much about Palantir and why I'm excited about it. I know that American lives have been saved by Palantir. That's a dramatic statement. I know that American lives have been saved by what Palantir does. I know that terrorist attacks in America have been stopped before they happen because of Palantir. And I'm, I'm a proud investor in Palantir. If I didn't make any money off Palantir, I'd be fine, because what they're doing to me is an enormous social good. I am a devoted believer in what Palantir does. I think it's a social good. we got to leave it there. Ken Langone, the co-founder of The Home Depot, and his new book is entitled I Love Capitalism, An American Story. Thank you very much, Ken Langone.
President Trump has said the U.S. is going to withdraw from the Iran nuclear agreement. And uh, after that announcement, we're getting word today that sanctions are being imposed on a governor of the central bank of Iran for his role moving, quote, millions of dollars to Hezbollah on behalf of Islamic Revolutionary God Corps force. This, according to the Treasury Department, joining us now to talk a little bit more about what else we can expect in the wake of this decision by President Trump is Daniel Wager, vice president in the global financial crime compliance division at Lexis Nexus Risk Solutions, a part of the RELX group based in New York. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you have extensive experience working with government agencies with these matters. How much do you think that we're going to see uh, these types of headlines coming out? I mean, are there going to be a, quite a few additional sanctions uh, re- revealed in the next couple of weeks? Um, thank you for having me this morning. I think it's going to be a constantly changing environment over the next several months, not only as the Treasury um, imposes um, new rules and regulations, but also as they reinstate old licenses, um, sunset some existing licenses um, for companies that have been engaged with Iran. So it will be a constantly changing environment. Well, Daniel, uh, over the weekend, I believe the chief executive of Siemens said that his company could not do any new business in Iran after the United States decided to pull out of this deal. And indeed, there are about $40 billion worth of aircraft deals uh, for new planes from Boeing as well as Airbus. Uh, Do you believe that 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 will remain uh, something in place? So the Treasury is going to have to examine requests from companies on an individual basis for licenses and exceptions. Um, There's also a wind-down period in place that runs for the next several months for companies to wind down existing uh, engagements and transactions. But uh, it's certain that uh, many of those deals and any deals that are in flight and not finalized could be in jeopardy. Daniel, I'm struck by what you said, uh, that the environment is going to be constantly changing. So how do companies make sure that they actually comply with all of the new sanctions? Uh, That's an excellent question. The companies like LexisNexis Risk Solutions focus on providing companies with data from government lists as well as information on companies and entities uh, throughout the globe to help companies identify uh, customers, counterparties, um, supply chain entities that could bring them risk um, by way of having uh, transactions themselves with Iranian entities. Now, if you're a non-U.S. company, but the product that you sell has 10% or more of U.S. originating parts, you'd be covered by these new sanctions, correct? Um, It's difficult to make a single rule on that because uh, there are two aspects, uh, two issues at play here. One is the sanctions aspect, which prohibits, broadly prohibits, transactions, services, or goods to be transferred to listed and named entities. But there's also issues around the commodities involved. So um, components of the goods, um, goods that are dual use um, or armaments or could be used in such products uh, are subject to additional restrictions. So for companies, uh, fortunately, most have complex structures in place uh, to abide by these rules, but it is a multi-layered set of rules that uh, intertwine with each other and create a great deal of uh, confusion uh, for companies that are operating in that space. What are you saying in terms of uh, the oil industry and companies that have longstanding agreements uh, in the region to provide oil field services? What is their uh, situation going to be like? Well, it would be good to uh, delineate between U.S. companies and those that are global, um, but which have a presence um, either through uh, trading on U.S. exchanges or the sale of U.S. goods, or as you mentioned before, the use of component U.S. goods, because the implications for both will be somewhat different. For U.S. companies, 
Um, this period of, of relaxed uh, Iranian sanctions has not actually given much relief to U.S. persons or entities to engage in transactions with Iran. So for them, it will be somewhat less complicated. But as you go down the supply chain, as you deal with transactional counterparties for financial institutions, um, global institutions and global companies have been engaging in that space and can bring risk um, either for themselves or for their U.S. company uh, counterparties in such transactions. So, Daniel, I want to shift gears a little bit uh, to tap into your vast knowledge uh, after having worked at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, U.S. Customs Service, which is a part of the Department of Treasury and the New York High Intensity Financial Crime Area. I want to talk about something happening domestically, uh, namely Michael Cohen and the financial records that have been widely reported uh, about essential consultants, his shell company. And, And some people are saying that the revelation of some of this information is illegal because banks are not allowed to share this information publicly. What's your take on this? So the the Bank Secrecy Act and other related and implementing regulations um, provide for requirements for U.S. financial institutions and other regulated entities such as payment processors and money services businesses, casinos, etc., to provide reports to the Treasury, specifically to FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, part of the Treasury, highlighting uh, what they believe to be suspicious or potentially suspicious activity by customers. And that information is afforded a great deal of secrecy, um, both to protect the privacy uh, and the rights of the person or the entity which is um, being referred on the basis of mere suspicion, but also to protect the banks and to encourage them to continue to file such reports. And it's important to note that such reports do not, they're not referenced in court filings. They're not designed to be, in fact, they're, they're restricted from being referenced. It's incumbent upon investigators to review them uh, as lead material, to analyze financial records more holistically, and then to present an analysis of the activity in accordance with judicial standards. Does the uh, role of the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency, does it make it easier for U.S. regulators and uh, investigators to actually track that kind of misuse of funds? Uh, That's a great point. The the U.S. dollar, um, because of its preeminence in that space, does provide an avenue for enforcement and prosecution that has a very global reach. And U.S. enforcement and regulatory agencies have shown a, a strong desire through their billions of dollars in enforcement penalties and fines that have been levied against corporations and banks. So just to just to wrap up here, as we hear all about uh, some of these payments and such, what's your big takeaway of some of the uh, suspicious uh, activity around the election? Well, um, referencing specifically the you know, focus on the financials, the um, reference of shell companies, all of these things um, by themselves uh, are, are simply suspicion or potentially suspicious. And things like shell companies... Um, are simply a flag that require companies and financial institutions to dive deeper, to engage in enhanced due diligence, to understand the people behind those entities, the purpose of payments. Um, And it's really important that companies, both corporate who operate in the global marketplace, as well as banks, understand their obligations and their tremendous exposure uh, to enforcement activities if they don't uh, exert the right amount of effort on such compliance programs. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Daniel Wager is a Vice President, Global Financial Crime Compliance for LexisNexis Risk Solutions, a part of the RELX group, uh, talking about Iran and U.S. sanctions.
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The approaching legalization of cannabis around the United States and in Canada, of course, uh, could it be igniting a variety of deals? Well, in many cases, it already has done so. Ken Shea is our senior analyst for global food, beverages and tobacco for Bloomberg Intelligence, and he joins us now. Ken, uh, thanks very much uh, for being with us. Okay, so uh, the caveat is you're not an expert in the Canadian cannabis market, but... You know about what happens when a market is open for business and you see the seeds, pun intended, of consolidation. Tell us about your outlook and about the industry. Uh, yeah, sure thing. Hi, Pim. Good to be with you today. Yes, you know, I, I look at this industry from a consumer products lens, an industry that I've been covering uh, for a while now. And the idea is that, like in the U.S., Canada... Uh, I believe that the growth in the cannabis industry is presenting a significant threat, but also opportunity for a lot of those companies. What we've seen over the last uh, year or so, particularly in Canada, is the excitement of the markets uh, with regard to the pending legalization, national legalization of both medical and recreational usage. And that's really creating a lot of change in the market over there right now. You know, I was struck by the volume of pot headlines yesterday. I mean, really, it was just like fast and furious. We saw the consolidation of Canadian companies, Aurora Cannabis and uh, Med Relief. Uh, also, though, we saw one of the heirs of the Jim Bean uh, whiskey uh, bourbon empire um, coming out and saying he thinks that marijuana is the uh, the liquor industry in the 1920s. What's your take on this? I mean, do you feel like things are sort of escalating at this point? I really do. And hi, Lisa. Yes, I do. Um, and, you know, I think what really drives that home is really last year, I guess, uh, the um, beer, spirits and wine giant Constellation brands uh, went out and bought a 9.9% equity stake in Canapa Growth, one of the leading uh, growers of cannabis in Canada. And I believe, uh, just like our friends over at Jim Beam believe, that there really is going to be a substitute effect um, between cannabis and alcoholic beverage. I mean, if you think about it, it's a mood alter, right? I mean, and I think a lot of the usage recreationally will be looked that way. And that's just not pie in the sky. I mean, that's what um, Constellation has said. And Molson Coors has suggested that's looking at cannabis as a, uh, you know, as a potential opportunity. And I, so I think to... Um, the big answer here is that I think the next big wave of mergers and acquisitions, particularly in Canada, you know, the growers now, but I think the second wave will be the big consumer packaged goods companies, the Anheuser-Busch's of the world, the Molson Coors, the Diageo's, to take a look at what Constellation did and maybe pursue the same strategy. Ken, do you believe that there'll be a time when a company such as Altria or Philip Morris will be in this business? Yes, I do, Pim. Um, you know, we learned back in the late 70s when, you know, upon discovery of a lot of internal documents, we know that tobacco companies were very interested um, in pursuing the marijuana markets. 
as we know now, it, it didn't become legally at, illegal at the federal level back then, so it couldn't. But uh, we believe uh, that they are looking at very closely. As a matter of fact, um, the, one of the largest uh, tobacco leaf suppliers to the big tobacco companies, Alliance One, already owns uh, a Canadian uh, uh, cannabis grower. And so if you think about it, what that means is that a significant supplier of tobacco leaf to the big tobacco companies like Philip Morris International and British American Tobacco is also capable of supplying them marijuana leaf if it needs to. So, yeah, I think they are definitely looking at it. Ken, I'm sure you're aware of the increase in the popularity of vaping and the popularity of a company, Juul, and its product. Do you believe that there are going to be patent wars over the exclusivity of the technology that allows for those kinds of devices? Uh, yes, I think there'll be some activity there. But, you know, whenever there's a hugely successful product like Juul is threatening the status quo, and in this case, the big, not only the big vapor uh, products of the big tobacco companies, but also the cigarette market in itself, I think you will see some challenges. That said, I mean, Altria's uh, new mark, uh, subsidiary is uh, coming out with a product that is very much like Juul, um, you know, a non-refillable vaporizer, as they call it. And, um, you know, so I think they're going to, I think most of the battle will be in the marketplace, but, um, you know, as it gets closer and closer to what Juul is, perhaps there could be some intellectual property um, discussions. So, Ken, uh, where are we with respect to U.S. legislation and legalization of marijuana? Well, in the U.S., it's really hung up at the federal level. As, as you may know, some 29 states have already um, legalized it for medical use and an additional eight for recreational use, and that number just keeps on growing. Um, and, but, but nevertheless, you know, without, federal, without a federal mandate, it really is difficult for these operators to grow. Um, and what I mean is because, for instance, you can't... Um, because it's a federal illegal product, you can't uh, bring cannabis products over state lines. Yeah. Uh, when you, you know, generate income, you're not allowed on your taxes to deduct normal operating expenses. So it's very difficult to make money uh, yeah. in, in the U.S. in this business today. That said, capital is still there for the companies that are in the business. The thought being, at some point, uh, enough public support will force the hand at the, at the federal level. So just given where we are today, do you know any estimates for what the medical marijuana industry uh, is worth? And do you then have some kind of sense of what it would be worth if you also have recreational use thrown in? Well, both recreation and medical in the U.S. is uh, an approximately 5 or $6 billion business. Um, the majority of that is still medical. Um, and in terms of what it's worth, that's a good question because there's a lot of capital, uh, institutional money on the sidelines who wants to invest in this business but just can't because it's, again, it's illegal at the federal level and there's a lot of uh, structural issues why they can't. But, I, you know, I think if the industry... Was we really wanted to push it along? Uh, what, what I think what they ought to consider is because the public support for the non-THC cannabis oil, basically extract from the cannabis plant, can be applied to so many positive uses: pain relief, uh, glaucoma, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that they ought to consider pushing that 
at the federal acceptance level, legalization level, and worry about the recreational side down the road. I mean, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, opponents to recreational still. You know, mothers against drunk driving and so on and so on. There's a lot of concerns that you know um, more easier access you know to this drug will uh, could could lead to some negative consequences. So what I'm saying is to find out what this total market is worth, the easiest way to do that is to kind of uh, delineate between the non-THC CBD oil opportunity, which I think is huge, uh, and the recreational side down the road. Ken Shea, thank you so much for being with us. I'm sure we'll be talking with you soon based on the accelerating volume of uh, marijuana stories that we've been seeing these days. Ken Shea, senior analyst uh, covering the global food, beverages, and tobacco industries for Bloomberg Intelligence. Berkshire Hathaway Vice Chairman Charlie Munger said Bitcoin is worthless, artificial gold. He said the fact that it's clever computer science doesn't mean it should be widely used and that respectable people should encourage other people to speculate on it. Well, that has not stopped more than 8,500 people from attending Coindesk's Consensus 2018 conference all about cryptocurrencies. They paid at least $2,000 a ticket to attend the three-day conference. And joining us now is one of the speakers and attendees to Bermuda Premier David Burt. Premier Burt, thank you very much for being with us. And um, I want to just offer uh, you the opportunity to talk about the criticism having to do with cryptocurrencies in as much as I believe Bermuda uh, is leading the charge in terms of legislation regarding cryptocurrencies with the Digital Asset Business Act. What was your goal in putting that forward. Well, thank you, uh, Pim. I would say that there are a wide range of uh, uh, cryptocurrencies, as they're called, um, and and that deal with lots of different things in the digital asset space. What we want to make sure that we provide in Bermuda, knowing that there's going to be innovation in this space and knowing that this space um, is going to revolutionize the way that financial services um, are delivered throughout the world, we just want to make sure that uh, companies that we build on our existing regulations that we've been so successful with in insurance and to make sure that we transfer those uh, regulations to the digital asset space so that players that are serious, players that want to be in a well-regulated jurisdiction and abide within the law can be in, can have a home in Bermuda. And uh, you were just saying that Bermuda was the first uh, to craft these crypto asset regulations in particular. And the goal here is for companies to incorporate and operate in Bermuda. How successful have you been so far in attracting uh, crypto asset companies? Um, well, this conference has proven incredibly successful. Um, we had the uh, speaking engagement uh, yesterday, and there were companies that were literally uh, about to go somewhere else and are now reconsidering their view and coming to Bermuda. So uh, one, one pushback maybe uh, people would say is, you know, maybe you craft regulations that are regulations, but perhaps aren't as strenuous as might be seen in a place like the United States. Um, what do you say to that? Uh, what I would say is that if you look at Bermuda's history, we've always been a place with excellent uh, uh, regulation. Uh, there's only two places that have regulatory equivalents with both the EU um, and the uh, United States, and that's Bermuda and Switzerland. We play um, in a different class than other uh, countries when it comes to regulation, and we're going to lead the way. So our regulation is tough. How do you uh, want to implement this new 
Digital Business mm-hmm. Act. What is the the? I know that you're looking. I, th- I think Binance is one of the exchanges mm-hmm. that has already said that they are interested in coming. They're going to mm-hmm. come to uh, Bermuda. Mm-hmm. What kind of infrastructure, legal infrastructure, do you offer? Um, well, Bermuda has been successful for a long time in uh, servicing um, international companies. Uh, the thing I said yesterday is that uh, it takes longer to uh, probably get to JFK than it does for the flight from JFK to Bermuda. But you can land in Bermuda in the. You can leave New York in the morning. You can uh, land in Bermuda by noon. You can see. We're renovating, uh, <laughs> by the way. But go on. <laughs> you, you can yeah, but see. But what, what what in the I guess what I want to understand is what in these draft regulations mm-hmm. specifically would allow. Uh, internet coin offerings mm. or digital currencies to operate in, in Bermuda? Um, the regulations basically govern the entire suite of digital asset providers. So if you are someone who um, is an exchange, if you're someone who's a wallet provider, if you're someone who's a customer provider, or if you're someone in the business of issuing digital assets for others, it is an entire suite of regulations that is built on our money service business um, uh, regulations, and it flows from the way of which we've always regulated companies, requiring mind management and control in Bermuda requiring a physical presence and making sure that the Bermuda Monetary Authority has access to the people. But what we're also going to do is give the regulator a tie-in so it's required that at any point in time there's any suspicious activity, the regulator can actually freeze assets which may exist in the digital space. So I'm just wondering, I mean, we hear a lot, uh, Pim was just talking about Warren Buffett's Mm -hmm. colorful words about Bitcoin. A lot of people are convinced that this is just a a bunch of quacks Mm -hmm. who are trying to create something that will evaporate and is the next tulip boom. Um, What do you say to that? I mean, how much, what is the proportion of, you know, quackery or ICOs that Mm -hmm. are essentially just fraud uh, versus something real? I can't necessarily speak to what is fraud. What I can speak to is the fact that there is real money that is going going to this space and you've seen real money coming in from Wall Street firms and otherwise investing in uh, digital assets and investing in this. Well, but, but I, j- I just want to clarify here because there's a difference between uh, Bitcoin mm-hmm. and blockchain. Absolutely. Where is, the, where is the opportunity here? Well, the opportunity is for people who are going to use blockchain technology to build a digital asset business. So that doesn't mean that you have to rely on Bitcoin or anything else. You are looking at saying, we recognize that digital assets are going to be the future. We're going to design innovative financial products, whether it's distributed energy, whether it's uh, distributed banking, that is going to be more effective efficient in delivering services. And we want those companies to use Bermuda as the innovation hub where they can test out those products in our regulatory sandbox and scale them globally. Okay. So let's say that you are an investor who is intrigued with the notion of cryptocurrencies and you go and you establish your own digital wallet and you somehow manage to acquire a variety of digital currencies. Then one day you go and you can't get access to your wallet or you find that the ledger that exists does not match what you had the day before. Is there a regulatory regime in Bermuda that you can go to that will then investigate and, if necessary, prosecute any problems related to that kind of situation? Absolutely. Those are the things which are spelled out inside of our Digital Asset Business Act. And we're going to require providers inside of this space to have the security measures in place, uh, which are necessary. But there's also problems that need to be solved in this space. And one of the key points, Pim, is what you spoke about is custody. So the company that um, on Friday at the Ethereal Conference announced they're moving to Bermuda, um, Omega One, is looking to solve 
solve that problem and to find a secure place to keep the keys because everything is race on who based on who holds the private key so we need to make sure that we have a way to secure those private keys and that's why we're going to innovate in Bermuda because there are problems that have to be solved in this space why do you think other countries have been slow mm -hmm. to adopt a regulatory framework for crypto assets well what I would say is it's a question when you're talking about New York I'm sorry if you're talking about the United States you know you have the different states you have the federal level then you have the SEC the CFTC all the rest in Bermuda we have one government one regulator um, and so we can be a lot more swift but the fact is that we are just building on what we've done already so we've done this successfully already with insurance we've done this successfully in the fund space and now we're just moving the regulation of which we have that very high level regulation into a new area of financial services which is digital assets Thank you so much for being here. Really fascinating to hear uh, what you have to say. The Honorable David Burt, he is the premier of the Bermuda government, joining us here in the 1130 studios. He was here for the Consensus 2018 conference that uh, has been taking place uh, starting Sunday in New York City. Yeah, the New York Hilton uh 8,500 attendees, and the Bitcoin right now is down 3%, $8,523 to be exact. Yeah, it's Bitcoin. interesting. There's a question, right, of how much uh, sort of cryptocurrencies get conflated with Bitcoin providers that uh, are being used by the likes of HSBC to do trade finance. So uh, definitely a fascinating conversation. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.